Amen. Amen. Well, it is good to be here. I hope you're doing well. I hope you've been able to have good, restful, relaxing Christmas. Hopefully you've been able to see some friends, even some family. Uh, Christmas is always a wonderful time to actually get together with family, and, and it's always interesting to me to see what different families look like and what you actually do when you get together. Uh, I, I remember very clearly when I was first being introduced to my wife's family, uh, I realized that they were not quite the ones who were going to be going out on hikes. Uh, they weren't going to necessarily sit and watch movies. They, they were going to sit and they were going to play board games. And so for the first number of months as uh, Corinne and I were dating, I would have to learn a brand new board game every time there was a family dinner. And, and they didn't necessarily play Monopoly, they played complicated board games. And so I would have to be sitting there trying to make a very good impression to this family, at the same time trying to learn how to play a game and not make an absolute fool of myself playing them. And so it was always a very tense thing going to those and trying to, to figure out how I was supposed to act. However, I, I think actually my wife had the harder end of it. See, my family, we didn't play board games. No, my, my family would sit around and they would tell medical stories. Most of my family's in healthcare, and so they would begin to tell stories about what they have seen at work, and my wife would have to try and sit there and try not to throw up. Because... And so, you know, it's just as you get to know more and more families, as you get into these things, you start realizing everyone's just a little bit different. Some are going uh, in different places, some are doing different things. There's different expectations, different uh, traditions that families have. And, and that's not even to talk about necessarily. Sometimes families are difficult. Sometimes things don't go well within families, and family get-togethers aren't a joyful, wonderful time. Actually, they're pretty tense, awkward, if not outright horrible time. And I think it's probably that, that latter reason why, why it's always so difficult whenever the Bible talks about the church as family. Because that is the, the primary way the Bible is going to talk about the church. We are family. Brothers and sisters is, is the common word that's used all throughout the New Testament for the church. We are a family. And the truth is, families are sometimes really different. And so when we hear that, that, that word family, we can all come up with very different ideas about what that is going to mean. And so what we're going to be doing here in this new series is we're calling it Family Dynamics. We're looking at what does it mean for the church to be a family? What do we do together? When, when we actually come together, what does that look like? How do we treat one another? How do we deal with disagreements, arguments? How, how do we deal with, you know, trusting other people? How do we do that? What do those relationships with one another actually look like? And so we're, we're going to spend a little while looking at these family dynamics. And, and this is going to be a different series, all right? This is the beginning of a very different series. I don't think we've ever done something quite like this at Central. It's going to last this series from now until about September, all right? And some of you are thinking, whoa, that's a long time. It's going to be a fill-in-the-gap series. We're never actually going to be on this series for more than about two weeks at a time. This is going to be uh, the time where we jump in for a little bit in between all of our next series as we've planned them out for the next year. And so it's going to be kind of a topical one-off that we're coming into and, and discussing a little bit, hopefully in some practical terms more and more, how do we exist as a family? What does that look like for us as a church, even on a, on a practical level? How do we do this together? 
So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to open to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 this morning, and this is going to be kind of our our introduction into the church as a family. How do we actually interact with one another? What's, What's our basis for our church life together? So if you have your Bibles open, you can follow along with me, and if you're able, let me invite you to actually stand as we read the Word of God. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. This is what it says. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful that the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. You may be seated. Many of, you, many of you are probably aware, my, my wife and I, we spent a little bit of time down in the States in, in Kentucky, so it's getting into kind of that southern United States, and so we, we found out when we got there that they used a word down there we don't really use here, it's the word y'all, right? And, and I have always heard that word, and I kind of thought in my mind, well, it's just kind of a random word that they threw into all their sentences, right? Y'all. But actually, it's actually a specific word. They use it very consistently across uh, whenever they use it. So if they're talking to one person, they'll say, how are you, singular, doing? And if there's a group of people, it's how are y'all doing? And when it's a really big group, it's how are all y'all doing, right? Okay. So this is what they did. And actually, it's a really helpful thing. It, It helps us distinguish between you, that's singular, and you, that's plural, And the reason I bring that up is because actually if we were translating this passage with a southern accent, all of the you's here would be y'all's. Actually, this is is not an individual passage. This is a corporate passage. It's intended to be understood as instructions, not for, for just one person, but for how the whole church is intended to act and work and function together. Right? Paul is sort of outlining what does it look like to actually be the church? How do you act towards one another? And so Paul is giving us this description of what the church looks like. What does this family look like? Every family, whether intentionally or not, we have traditions. We have characteristics that, that, that define and, and help us understand who we are. And really, that's what this passage is. You could approach it and think, well, it's almost just a list of rules, but that's not the intention. It's a description of really who the church is, how we are to act, and what we do together. And so we're looking at, really, family characteristics and family traditions that define us. We're defined by love for one another, and everything we do is done in thankfulness to Jesus. All right, and so that's what we're going to look at as we as we walk through this passage. But 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 before we even get there, <laughs> before we can even really get into this passage, we have to realize verse twelve starts with "put on then" as God's chosen ones, and he continues on. 
We're jumping right into the middle of, of Paul making an argument for us. He, he's making a point, and we've kind of jumped right into the middle, right into the middle of a book. And so if we're going to understand it, we kind of almost have to back up just a little bit and understand what is Paul talking about before we get here, because if we misunderstand, we're going to make some really big mistakes in this passage, okay? So quickly back up. If you have your Bible open, you can turn back just to verse 1 of chapter 3. Verse 1 says, Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So what we need to see here is Paul is starting with an assumption. Everything he's writing after this point, he's starting with an assumption, and that is that you have been, what he calls, raised with Christ. So if we're going to understand our passage, we have to start with the question, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Have you confessed your sins? Do you trust in him? Have you repented and turned, and are you following after him? This is really the, the starting place before anything else that we can talk about when it comes to the church. The church is the gathering of those who trust and believe in Jesus. And so before we describe anything about who we are and what we do, we really have to start at this foundation point, and that is, do you know Jesus? Do you understand what, what, what he has done? How that has changed and transformed our lives? Because there's no way to kind of force your way into the church. There's no roundabout way. Everyone comes into the church the exact same way, and it's through trust and faith in Jesus. Paul writes in the book of Galatians, chapter 4, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, Jesus, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Our entrance into the family of God is through adoption by Jesus. Right? None of us have been born into the right family. No one is born into the church. We come into the church, we are part of God's family because we have trusted in what Jesus has done and he has brought us in. So do you know Jesus as your savior? Do you understand all of us have sinned? We've all fallen short of God's perfection, his holiness, all under his judgment. But the good news is that Jesus came. He died in our place. He took that punishment that anyone who trusts in him would be saved. There's the gospel. Do you trust and do you know that? Because the truth is, for everyone who does, you are adopted into God's family. You are brought into the family of God. No one has earned it. No one has deserved it. Everyone is here by grace. Right? This is the shared story that everyone in God's family has. God had mercy on us. And so this is really the, the background to everything that Paul is going to write. Everything that Paul is going to say in, in the passage we just read is based on us understanding that truth, that God has already redeemed and saved and transformed our lives. And now, Paul says, so now seek the things that are above. What is that? Well, that's what we're reading. So let's, let's look back at our text now, and, and I want to talk about what, what is our family characteristics, 
What are the things that, that define who we are? Verse 12. Paul writes, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Here's Paul's initial description of the church. And as he lists all of these characteristics, he kind of gives us the, his, his answer at the end. You know, what is, what is the primary characteristic of the church? He says, above all these things, put on love. What is meant to define the church? It's meant to be defined by love. It's a beautiful thing. But I, I think if there's any word in the English language that is most misunderstood, it's probably the word love. As many different definitions we have of, of what it means to be family, we have just as many, if not more, definitions of what it means to actually love. It's this confused, misused, misunderstood word that really means everything from, you know, some kind of passing fondness to deep, intimate emotions and everything in between. Not to mention, actually, a whole bunch of misuses of the word as well. So, so what does Paul actually mean? What does the Bible say when we are to be defined by love? How should we understand that term? And so I, I think, I think actually it's, it's everything Paul had been talking to up until that point. All of those characteristics that Paul has just listed through are how we are to understand the love that exists in this church. So what we're going to do is we're just going to quickly, well, not that quickly, but a little quickly, walk through these characteristics and actually see what does love in the church look like. Paul says, first of all, put on compassionate hearts. And, and I really appreciate the way that he, that he uses that phrase. Right? He says, put on compassionate hearts. In the same way that you would put on your clothing at the beginning of every day, so you are to put on a compassionate heart. And, and I appreciate that so much because that's not the way that we normally think about what goes on in our hearts, is it? We usually think about our hearts as, well, it, it, stuff just happens. I like what I like, I want what I want, and I have compassion on the people that... I have compassion on there's there's nothing I can do about it and yet Paul is is writing and even commanding teaching saying go put this on same way that you'd put on clothes put on a compassionate heart and here's where if we don't start with Jesus we're going to get ourselves really confused see if if we hear this as merely another rule I have to do I'll drum up some fake emotion in my life in order to try and do this instead of realizing, well, what happens when we trust in Jesus? When we trust in Jesus, he actually gives us a new heart. He transforms our heart, one that was corrupt and following after sin to now one that follows after him. When Paul says, put on a compassionate heart, he means you've got to trust in the Holy Spirit to transform you. You can't do it yourself. This is not something that we have to force or fake. This is something we pray, Holy Spirit, transform me from the inside out. Give me compassion for other people. Help me to look at others and actually feel caring emotions and care for the things that they go through. That ought to define 
part of who we are and how we love, right? Compassion leads us then to acts of kindness. It's the next thing Paul lists. It's actually then acting on those things and and seeking what is going to be best for someone else. Compassion leads us to kindness, leads us actually, well, to humility, Humility we often think of as as just looking down on ourselves, really beating ourselves. I'm so terrible. I'm so terrible. That's not what humility is. Humility is looking for others first. It's looking to what other people need. And so as we have compassion, as we act in kindness, we're humbling ourselves. We're putting others first, which leads us then to meekness. Meekness, or or sometimes talked about as gentleness. I think oftentimes we, we misunderstand this attribute. We think about it as, as really being weak, right? Letting ourselves being pushed around, right? Not responding, you know, with, with standing up for ourselves, but actually just kind of letting ourselves become a punching bag. That's not what meekness or gentleness is talking about. Meekness, gentleness in the Bible is always turning from uh, a, a, a rash response. When someone attacks you, you're not attacking back. You're actually responding with grace. And I think we just need to remember that takes far more strength than a violent response. In fact, it takes almost no, it takes no strength of character to respond violently to someone attacking you. It takes immense strength to respond gently. See, if you ever watch, say, professional athletes playing their sport, right? You watch hockey, and, and you see these guys, and they're just skating around the ice. They, they have the puck on their, on their stick, and it seems like it's attached by a string. All they have to do is just flick their wrist a little bit, and the puck goes sailing exactly where they want. And it looks, they make it look easy, don't they? That's why all the guys sitting on the couch are like, yeah, I could do that. No, you can't. No, you can't, right? The moment you get on the ice, you realize you're falling all over the place, and the puck is a lot heavier than it seems like, Right? As soon as someone actually has the the skill, the strength, the the determination to actually go through and practice that, it makes it look easy, right? It's the same thing with responding gently. Responding gently actually takes a great amount of strength. It takes a great amount of strength to respond to someone graciously instead of lashing out at them. It's the demonstration of strength uh, required to respond graciously to others. Paul says, clothe yourself in that and then do so with patience. Patience in many ways is is really a test of what our character is like. It's a test of where our heart truly is because we can all imagine responding to someone well once, right? That's not hard. I'll just respond nicely one time instead of, well, what happens the second time? Third time, fourth time, fifth time, hundredth time, are we still responding graciously? See, I've always, I've always thought of myself a little bit as a patient person. And then we got kids. And God has seen fit to test my foolish thought. Right? Children have a wonderful way of actually showing us the grace we still need. Right? Patience is proof of character over time. And Paul's point is that actually the love to be displayed in the church doesn't happen once. 
It happens over and over and over and over again. You are to continue in this demonstration of love for one another as you bear with one another, as you actually support one another in all the, the trials, the struggles they're going through. You actually support and, and help them through that. The church is meant to be a place where you can lean on others and you can actually help others as well. And then finally, Paul adds, and, and perhaps most difficultly, forgiving one another. And again, Paul really doesn't leave this one open for us to say, you know, I, I, just, I don't feel like forgiving them. I don't feel like I, I, I should. It's too big a thing. I, I can't do it. Paul adds in this really, really difficult command. Verse 13, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We're called to forgive the same way that God has forgiven us. If you remember, I mean, God doesn't just forgive some of our sins. He doesn't even forgive most of our sins or even just the, the really benign one. Actually, God forgives all of our sins. And that's what Paul is saying. You are to forgive all. And that is a very expansive statement and a very difficult one to genuinely live through. We could spend a long time talking about what that looks like towards one another, how that deals with reconciliation and all those challenging aspects. But, but for now, I just want us to see the posture here of love. The posture of love is to forgive as we have been forgiven to show the kind of love and grace God has given to us, to show it now to other people. And so Paul says, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is actually what holds all of these attributes together. All of them are a demonstration of what it looks like to love one another in the church. These are our family characteristics, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, all wrapped together in love for one another. Right? It's a beautiful picture of how the church is intended to work together. It's a beautiful picture that that's actually worth fighting for and working towards. See, I think so often we, we can get ourselves bogged down in sometimes what church is really like. That is the truth is the church is sometimes really messy. There's a lot of difficult things that go on. And I'm not going to ignore all of that, but what I want us to see first of all is just the beautiful picture that's here. Because if we don't have that in mind, we're never actually going to work for it. If you don't understand the, the worth and the value and the beauty that God has created the church to be, we'll never put any time or effort towards it. And that's actually what I want us to see. I want us to see that the picture of the church is beautiful and it is worth our time, our effort, even our self-sacrifice to love one another well. Jesus says, you're going to be known by your love. So let this kind of self-sacrificial, God-glorifying, Holy Spirit-depending love be and define our church. Let us clothe ourselves every day with this attitude of love. So how do, we, how do we do that then practically? How do we actually work on that in this place? Well, I mean, if you're going to 
have compassion on others. We're going to show kindness. We're going to put them before. It means we really need to start and we need to know one another. I think we all have a bit of a tendency. It's very easy to get into the habit of saying, all right, I came for the service and I'm gone. I just leave right away. Actually, stop and get to know some people. Talk to them. Call them during the week. Invite them over to, to eat if you're able to do that. Find someone who's sick. Bring them some groceries or a meal. Help, help fix stuff around their house. Volunteer to babysit for kids. Spend time with one another. If love is to be the primary attribute of this church, it should be demonstrated regularly. It should be felt and seen the moment we're gathering here together. This is a place where people actually care and love one another well. Right? I don't remember who said it, so I can't take credit, but love lingers. Love sticks around and actually gets to know other people here. I know we don't have coffee anymore, and it's a little sad. But I actually get to know someone. And I'll be really down-to-earth practical. I can't tell you how many times I've had this exact conversation. And some of you are going to feel singled out. No, all of you have had this conversation nearly with me at this point. You'll say, I don't feel like I know people here very well. And it's because I, I don't remember if I've met them or not. Okay? It's hard. We're all wearing masks. It's hard to remember. You change a mask, you change your hair slightly, and you're a different person. Who knows if I've met you before? I feel really uncomfortable because I don't remember your name, and it's hard to do this. Everyone is in that boat, okay? Many people have had this conversation with me. What do I do? And my answer is always ask them their name. Just do it. Just do it. I don't care if you've met them a thousand times. Today, ask every person you talk to their name. And just go for it. And you know what? If there's someone you're not sure if you've met before, just go and talk. Just, just ask them, how was Christmas? What happened? What did, you know, what did you learn? What did you do? Just start talking to other people. Because guess what? We're all feeling that way. We're all feeling somewhat disconnected and feeling like, I don't know if I've met you before. Maybe they've gone to church 20 years. Maybe we've gone to church together for 20 years. All the better time to ask now. <laughs> Don't wait another 20 years to get to know some people. Actually, just spend time together. Let love linger here and get to know one another that we can actually act out this love, that we can show it for one another, that the kindness and all the love that God has shown to us, we can actually show here together. That we can be known for this love. The primary family characteristic of the church is love. Let that radiate in this place. Paul says in verse 15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Here, Paul begins to kind of transition from, if you will, sort of those internal characteristics to some of the more external. What are the things that we actually do together? What are these family traditions that we actually practice when we meet and gather? Verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Here, Paul really outlines what do we do when we get together? 
when the church actually gathers together as believers, what should we do? Right? They've called these you know, family traditions, and, and really it's more family practices or, or a description of what we do every single Sunday. Right? We spend time in the Word. We sing together, and we give thanks to God. There is the description of what we do as a family. We read the Word, we sing, we worship, and we give thanks. Right? In the same way that really all of the internal descriptions Paul gives are are wrapped up in in love. All of the external things are wrapped up in giving thanks to God. Why do we spend time in the Word? Why do we spend so much time talking about the Bible? Why do we do that? Well, it's actually so that we can give thanks more and more. Paul says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Everything in our Bibles is pointing us towards what Jesus has done whether getting us ready for it to help us see maybe our own sin, our inability, or to see the the greatness of his redemption and forgiveness or how we are to act in light of it. All of it points us towards Jesus. And I love the way Paul writes this because he doesn't say there should be one guy teaching. Actually, he writes, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. It's not enough for one person in a church to, to, to know their Bible and to be the teacher. Actually, we're called to be able to teach one another. It's not, it's not no, hear me, it's not a free-for-all to just begin to, I can teach whatever I want. No, no. In all wisdom, okay, that's important. But it does mean that we're called to actually talk to one another, say, hey, this is what God's been teaching me through his word. Here's how I've been reading my devotions. Here's my new plan for 2022 of how I'm going to work through the Bible. And here's, you know, maybe you want to join me on it. Can we hold one another accountable? Can we learn together more and more of what is happening in the Bible, right? Let that be so that all of us are actually teaching one another, admonishing and building ourselves up to be more and more thankful for what God has done. It's really hard to be thankful if you don't know what Jesus has done. If you only know a little bit, you'll only be a little bit thankful. But the more you learn about what Jesus has done, the more thankful you will be towards God again and again so that we can praise him more and more. That's the other thing that the church is called to do. We're actually called to sing. Recalled, verse 16 says, singing, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We're called to sing the Bible, right? The Psalms, that's that's Israel's hymn book. We're called to sing them. We're called to sing hymns and spiritual songs, right? These, These songs that point us towards the truth of the Bible, the truth of what Jesus has done. See, sometimes we can almost view singing worship in the church as a way to fill the time, Right? Well, we've got to do something when we get here, so may as well someone play something. That's not why we sing in church. We sing in church as a response, as thankfulness to God for what he has done. And see, here's the amazing thing, what happens when we sing. See, singing is so much different than preaching. As much as I would love it if all of you left here and you've got the words of this text or even my sermon, you know, rattling through your head, most of you are going to leave here and you're going to have a song stuck in your head. Because that's how God has made us. 
God has made us that, that songs rattle and stay in our brain far after you've forgotten everything that I have said. You still have a song bouncing around in your head. And by God's good design, he made us that way. And he called us, sing together because you're going to remember the great truths of God in a unique way. That's a good thing. So let us sing together and praise him in thankfulness for everything that God has done. Singing is the response of the heart in thanksgiving to God for what he has done in Jesus. So Paul says, whatever you do, whatever you say in the church is to be done with thanksgiving. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What's God's will for your life? That you would rejoice, pray, and give thanks to God. That's what we are called to do as God's family. It's what we do when we gather. Our family tradition is hear the word, sing, rejoice, and give thanks to God. See, it's the picture of really what the church is meant to be. A loving family gathered together in thankfulness to Jesus. It's a beautiful picture. And and I know, I I am well aware that, that the church isn't always like that. It breaks my heart when it isn't. Right? The family that should be so beautiful is still so broken. Right? Sin still exists in the church. And, and I don't say that to sort of brush it off and say, well, it doesn't matter. Nobody's perfect. That, that's not what I mean. Actually, that should light a fire under us that says, we're not done yet. Sin still exists in the church. We're not done. Our work is still ahead of us. So let us pursue this kind of love. Let us pursue this beautiful picture of what the church is meant to look like. We will not be a perfect church. We're going to have flaws. But we're not done. And so as we kind of close here, I want us to to finish with with actually a description of the church we we skipped over right at the beginning. And I think it's helpful to have this in mind whenever we talk about how, how the church doesn't always measure up to the picture God has given. Verse 12, Paul began this whole passage by saying, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. See, that is the description of the church. Chosen, holy, and loved. And so every time you look around the church and you think to yourself, why are they here? The answer is because God chose them. Because God brought them here. God brought us together in Jesus' name. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. No one has. And God has brought us together in Jesus Christ. We are chosen. We are holy. And I know that the church doesn't always look that way. It looks messed up at times. But remember, the church is those whom God has forgiven. Not of some of their sins, but of all of them. And one day we will be without sin. God has forgiven us and one day we will be perfect when he returns. We are chosen, we are holy, and we are loved. 
God has set his affection and love upon the church. God has not loved the church because we are lovely. The church is lovely because God has loved us. One day Jesus will return and he will come back for his church. And so until that day, let us give ourselves to the demonstration of the love of God among us. Let us get to know one another, care for one another, actually build one another up more and more as we hear the word, as we sing together, as we give thanks to God. Let us rejoice and work for this beautiful picture that God has given in the church. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful. Father, we are so grateful that you bind us together because it is not up to us to do it. Father, we confess we are, we are sinful. We fall short of even the beautiful picture you've laid before us. And so, Lord, I pray, would you be working in our own hearts? Lord, give us new, compassionate hearts full of kindness, humility, meekness, and patience that we would bear with one another, that we would forgive one another as you have forgiven us. Lord, I pray, would you fill this place with your Holy Spirit that your love may be seen and known and demonstrated. And Lord, would we give you all the praise? Would, you, would we give you all the glory for what you have done? Father, thank you. Thank you for what you are doing. Lord, I pray, continue that work in this year as we go forward. Build your church, we pray. In your name, amen. Amen.